0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to a RAND policy forum on the technology and expanding uses of drones. I am Iao Katagiri, Director of Community Relations, and it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Our moderator is Dr. Ted Harshberger, Vice President and Director of RAND's Project Air Force Division. The division has been the only federally funded research and development center for the Air Force that is focused entirely on policy studies. It is nearing the end of its sixth decade of supporting the Air Force with an integrated program of research on complex, long-range issues. Ted has served in several research management capacities at Brand. He worked for the Air Force as Special Assistant to the Director of Modeling, Simulation, and Analysis. He led Corporate Strategic Development at Northrop Grumman Corporation and was Senior Director for Global Operations at Harman International. Our second panelist is Randy Steeb, a senior engineer at RAND. He has directed research on military combat vehicles, drones, robotic ground vehicles, improvised explosive devices, and microelectromechanical systems. He is author or co-author of more than 30 reports on these and related topics. Finally, Steve Gitlin is Vice President for Marketing Strategy and Communication for AeroVironment Incorporated, headquartered in Monrovia, California. Besides manufacturing small, unmanned aircraft systems, AeroVironment is also an innovator for improving electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging solutions. Steve joined Aerovironment in two thousand two, focusing on their unmanned aircraft systems and efficient energy systems business divisions. And now, please join me in welcoming our panel on
1: drones. Thank you. Uh, The ability to fly an aircraft without a pilot goes actually back to the dawn of flight. People were thinking about putting a radio and flying these airplanes around a long time ago. But clearly something's changed a lot in the last few years. So we're here to, this group's here to talk about how that's evolved and where it's headed. Now let me get something out of the way. Uh, Nobody in the business calls these things drones. Okay, We all call them unmanned aircraft systems or UASs or things like that. Uh, Our development staff is looking horrified out there somewhere. They hate acronyms, but we all make our living off of them. So you may hear that uh, tonight, Uh, so uh, apologies for that. So let's get right to it, and we'll start by getting a handle on what the heck we're talking about here. So Steve, I'll start with you. Uh, We've all seen the news about the large Predator and Reaper-type aircraft, like the picture that was up here very recently. Um, They're shooting and, and, and doing all sorts of things in places like Yemen and Pakistan. Um, But there are a very wide range of these systems, I know. We see something sitting in front of us here. Can you give us a quick sense of the the types of systems that are out there and the uses that they're being put to right now? Absolutely. Before I
2: do, just a thank you to Rand. Thank you to everybody here for giving us the opportunity to have an open dialogue about a topic that's really important and one that we hope to help inform you about. And um, and I don't have a Ph.D., but my wife got a Ph.D., so I went through that painful (laughs) process. (laughs) By osmosis, <laughs> I guess I have one. So there, there really are um, a wide variety of unmanned aircraft systems, and, and if you'll indulge me for a moment, I've got a slide up here with a picture that shows a bunch of different kinds of unmanned aircraft that are used extensively by the military. And among those, you'll see on the lower right-hand corner is something there called a Raven. Raven and Puma are systems that we make. The Raven has about a four-foot wingspan, to put this all in perspective. It's carried by a soldier or a Marine or an Air Force officer or a special operator. It's assembled by hand in the field. It's literally launched by hand and it carries a camera. And that camera can see in daylight and it can see at nighttime. And it transmits that visual information back to the operator, basically providing information to people who need information on the spot. So the basic premise of this technology is to provide information that allows for better decision-making for people who need that information. In this environment, that can mean the difference between life and death. Uh, In a wide range of exciting new environments that we're going to be talking about, it can mean the difference between finding a lost person in the wilderness or investigating a hazardous material spill without putting someone in harm's way or keeping tabs on a large farm to make sure that everything's receiving enough water and there's no... um, infestations that'll interfere with the productivity and profitability of that enterprise. So we'll talk a little bit more about the wide variety of applications, but just to put it into perspective, you can see the different sizes range. As you get larger and larger, the costs increase almost by an order of magnitude. And the people required to manage those systems also increases quite considerably. I, I did bring a, uh, a demonstration item for you here today. This is actual scale. This is called the Cube. It's a device that we've developed specifically to address the first responder market, police, uh, fire, hazardous material, disaster response. And its purpose in life is to give the people who need that information immediate aerial information that they could otherwise not get easily or would otherwise be very, very costly, and potentially put someone in harm's way to obtain that information. So hopefully that provides you a basic orientation to what the, the vast variety of systems that are out there today.
1: Thanks, Stephen. I'll note that it's a cheap thing to come with a prop when these two geeky Rand guys are up here with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot for that. Um, Randy, uh, let, me, let me ask you, uh, what's going on uh, technologically here? What, what technologies are sort of enabling this rapid proliferation of all these systems we see in the picture behind us
3: a lot of what we're seeing is that over the last decade, there's been a, in, enormous numbers of, of, uh, of, of breakthroughs, many of them from iPad and iPhone and, and, uh, and, and simple commercial devices that allow you to have uh, all the capabilities you see. GPS, INS, uh, inertial navigation systems, they're becoming small, low power, uh, low cost. Uh, sensors that used to be very large, uh, electro-optic uh, sensors, radar sensors, infrared sensors, they're down to a few ounces. Uh, There's a new radar, the PICOSAR, which is a synthetic aperture radar. used to be about 100 pounds or so, down to two pounds. So now we're getting to be much smaller in in these... systems and capabilities, and and as we go through communication systems, even weapon systems. It used to be that uh, you needed a 100-pound hellfire to take out a target, and so you'd have to have a very large airframe to be able to carry that. Now there's Griffin, there's Pyros, there's Spike. These are are weapons that are in development that are down to about 5 pounds. So now instead of having large collateral damage, you have small very, very capable, lower-cost weapons. And so the, 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 the whole technology is moving extremely fast. In the, in the result of this, we, we have a, a, a shift in the way the Army is even acquiring, the Army and the other services, acquiring systems. It used to take 20 years to have a new system. It go through requirements, uh, engineering, prototypes, Testing the, uh, the 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 Kevlar helmet took twenty years to actually actually come into into play. The the Abrams tank took longer than that. There are new systems now that take six or twelve months. The Air Environment uh, Puma and the and the Raven uh, took very little time. We're rapid equipping; they're right out in the field, and they get upgraded almost every year.
1: Okay, well, th- thanks, Jay. I, I will take a moment to note that. Um, We worked together for many years, and I still think you were wrong about the future combat system back in (laughs) 2000. So so look, the other thing I'd note out of this is that what you see up here is driven largely by commercial technologies or commercially available technologies. not a lot here that's uh, exclusively available only to the United States. So we should expect to see and are seeing these proliferating around the world. But uh, both of your comments have sort of pointed to an evolving role, an expanding role for these systems in the future. And let's look a little bit more to the future now. Uh, Let me stay with you Randy. Uh, uh, These really have been a centerpiece of our counterterrorism strategy. Uh, Actually Patrick Johnson in a very nice set of work here at RAND has argued I think very persuasively that these really have damaged Al Qaeda and kept people out of harm's way in the process. Do you see an unlimited increase in these systems going forward or is there some natural limit within the military?
3: Well, some people think that uh, uh, we've hit the limit. That that there there's so many unmanned systems out there. There actually are, are more hours of unmanned aircraft flying over some theaters now than, than manned aircraft. There's more pilots being uh, recruited for unmanned aircraft than there are for, for manned aircraft. However, there's so many new missions, so many new functions. We feel that there's going to be a, a great increase. Now, if you take it as an example, probably the most controversial one, targeted killings. These are ones where, starting in 2001, predator strikes were, were taken against al-Qaeda and other uh, uh, organizations. And in, in, that, uh, uh, in that process, they, they found that, that this, this was thought of, these, these targeted strikes by drones, thought as as, as the worst form of warfare. Except for all the other kinds, uh, the, the, uh, normally thirty to fifty percent of uh, uh, of the casualties are civilian, non-combatants, uh, civilians that are that are that are uh, simply uh, nearby. And this is this is from aircraft, from artillery, from direct fire, all the all the usual thing. Now, the uh, uh, several several different sources from Georgetown, uh, from uh, the International Red Cross, they found that three to six percent of casualties or non-combats with predators since 2006. That's even gone down since 2010. So this is a, a, a very precise weapon, but the, then, the, then the question is, does it make a difference? As Ted was mentioning, uh, Patrick uh, Johnson in our Pittsburgh office has looked at this in, in combination with uh, Stanford researchers. And they, 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 they were wondering, will they simply replace those that are killed? Will uh, will it make such a uh, response in the area that there'll be more more uh, more actions, more uh, uh, more atrocities? Uh, what they looked at was each one of the targeted killings, uh, see whether or not a, 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 a leader, a decapitation attack had taken place, and were there more events that, that occurred around that area? It's significantly a significant drop over a long period. This wasn't like taking out an uh, uh, IED and place her in the next day somebody takes her place. A leader is somebody who has education. They have some knowledge about weapons. They're computer savvy. They're hard to replace. So for several months, there were reduced IED attacks, reduced uh, 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 ambushes, and very, very uh, 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 large large impact suicide bombings. All of those went down significantly. So we see that there's going to be a very large increase both in these types of uh, uses of the weapons and all the other surveillance communication and, and other applications.
1: Yeah, actually let's turn to that, Steve. Uh, th- there, are, there are some pretty dramatic statistics about this, right? About how many of these unmanned air systems are really employed out there, well over 10,000 by last count. And over half of those are actually these small uh, uh, vehicles that are your, your company produces. So what direction do you see the military market going in other markets Uh, Bigger or smaller? More or less capable? um, All of the above? We're not sure.
2: Well, you're you're absolutely right about the numbers. Um, According to the DOD's own statistics, more than 85% of all the unmanned aircraft in the Pentagon's inventory look like this and come from air environment in quantities. More than 85%, small, deployable to the ground troops who have no other way of knowing what's on the other side of that wall or up ahead uh, beyond that ridge line. Um, but by the same token, according to our, our analysis, less than 5% of all the money spent on unmanned aircraft systems have been spent on these small units. So you get tremendous benefit, tremendous uh, payback on a very, very small investment. And, and, and as Randy mentioned before we continually upgrade these platforms. So the current Raven, we introduced that Raven back in 2003. The current Raven looks the same, but is a completely different set of technology, much more precise, better imagery, digital communication. In terms of the future, it really is driven by mission requirements. What is it that that the customer is trying to achieve? And based on those requirements, there will continue to be a need for larger systems like this Gray Eagle, which is a variant of the Predator. Um, and there will continue to be requirements for these small systems. We're developing, I don't know if anyone has seen here the uh, Nano Hummingbird. We got a lot of press a few years ago. That's a product of AeroVironment. It's a six and a half inch wingspan unmanned aircraft system that flies on its own, carries a video camera, and can fly for 11 minutes. No one's ever done that before. Um, there will be need, a need for smaller devices that are literally pocketable so that the people on the front line facing the greatest risk We'll be able to get that immediate information and make better decisions as a result. So we'll continue to see technology driving capability, and we'll continue to see a variety of platforms, different sizes, different weights, different cost structure to
1: address different mission requirements. So I'll just pose a question to close out this portion, which is beyond what you see today right now. Uh, What is the single most exciting application that you can see out there in the future? And, uh, Steve, I'll ask you to look in the civilian side since I know you you have a keen interest in that. And, and Randy, maybe pick something on the military side.
3: I think the most exciting application is actually swarming and, 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 and the ability of these systems to act together. Uh, as as an example, th- th- commercially, this is uh, uh, something where you can have uh, a happy birthday to your wife. You can do all sorts of things with uh, with dancing UASs. Uh, this this is this is this is out there now, and and uh, swarming operations can be a, a real game changer. Uh, against against the enemy, but but as an example of something that that's a little more mundane, but I think more important is logistics. Uh, in, in in Iraq and Afghanistan, they've had a lot of losses due to fuel convoys, ammo ammo supply going 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 from a, a forward operating base to a. Combat outpost and what they've tried now is the KMAX helicopter. This is a unmanned helicopter It's able to to take a a pallet load and move it from one place to another without any human intervention They've moved they've moved three million pounds of uh, uh, Of equipment in Afghanistan without any problems at all and without the risk of the human So I think that's a that's a big area.
2: We we prepared a video that depicts some very interesting and a small sample of civilian applications Let's see if we can uh, put that up now. There we go so We've talked mainly about military, but think of this as an aerial vantage point that's easy to deploy, low cost, easy to use, and can provide immediate information to people who need it. And as you can see here, we've, we've painted a picture of a number of very interesting applications for how that vantage point and that package can really deliver significant value. Interesting to note, the Association of Unmanned Vehicle Systems International, it's called AUVSI. That's an industry group that we belong to. They conducted a study to assess the economic impact of the eventual integration of unmanned aircraft systems into the national airspace. And when those rules are scheduled to apply in 2015, in the ensuing 10 years, they calculated an economic impact of more than $80 billion, that's billion with a B, and the creation of more than 100,000 jobs nationwide. So... Clearly, there are numerous, very high value, very relevant applications where this technology that has been battle proven in the harshest military environments imaginable can deliver significant benefits here in the homeland. Uh, And and let's not forget, first responders like the uh, deputy uh, fire chief here can clearly understand the value of approaching a hazardous situation, a fire, earthquake damage to a building, and obtaining immediate information overhead to allow them to do a better job of finding the people who need, to be, need help and keep tabs of their people so that they can navigate that dangerous situation very safely.
1: So um, we've talked a little bit about where we are and where we're headed. So let's turn to some key policy issues. And you just brought one up, which is the national aerospace, uh, airspace. There's been a lot of debate about that, about opening up the national airspace to more um, extensive use of unmanned systems in controlled controlled airspace. So are we going to see these things flying much over Santa Monica? I gather some of them have already, and are they up there now? Uh, And how can our safety be ensured uh, under those conditions?
2: Well, I I don't know what, if any, are being used in Santa Monica currently. Mm -hmm. I do know that anybody in this room can go online or go to a hobby store and purchase a small remote-controlled electric-powered quad rotor, as this is called, or little airplane, and fly that around under what's called the hobbyist exemption to FAA regulations. So just FYI, you'll all run out, I'm sure, and make those orders today. (laughs) Um, However, the people who we pay and we hire to protect us are not allowed to use this technology to go after people who are threatening our safety. That's, That's an important point. The only way they can do that is through a very, very limited uh, procedural process by which they can procure FAA permission to operate a system like the Cube in a very specific area, daytime only, a very confined geographic area. So those rules are scheduled to change in uh, September of 2015 when the FAA has been mandated to integrate unmanned aircraft systems into the national airspace. At some point, I'm convinced, and many of the people I work with in industry are convinced, that seeing systems like this um, will be commonplace. But they'll be used for applications that are going to protect us, that are going to help us, There are some interesting startups that are focusing on using systems like these to deliver medicine to people who need that medicine in remote areas. This system as it stands today can be used to act as a communication relay node, basically a flying Wi-Fi hotspot to provide internet connectivity to localized areas that don't have that. Right? So, very, very exciting. It, it is an incredibly exciting time right now in this industry. We're on the very first uh, – we're, we're in the batter's box. We have, the first inning hasn't even started, and there's some very interesting and exciting opportunities ahead of us.
1: Yeah, I'd note, too, that, that there's a real difference going on in the, in the public discussion between these smaller uh, aircraft and larger uh, predator and global hawk-like um, aircraft. Uh, one thing I did note today, in the news today, was that Djibouti asked us to shift our drone operations in their country from one airport to another because they'd had a few crashes of predators. So Djibouti was a little worried. I think that's, the, that's a big impetus in the, in, the, in the public debate in the United States, these larger vehicles. But, but still trying to get itself sorted out is this set of smaller craft that arguably are much more relevant to the day-to-day civilian applications. Yeah, so.
2: good, good point. Uh, the, this system flies for 40 minutes, right? This is not a pervasive kind of capability that's up there for an endless amount of time. It's mission-specific. It's a specific need at a specific place a specific time. Um, and systems like this are used the same way. Recently, the FAA, for the very first time in history, granted what's called type certification to one of our products, the Puma, which is listed over there, to operate for commercial purposes in, in, in an area of the Arctic. And part of the reason they did that is because there is such an extensive history of safe and successful operation of that system in the military that they had the confidence, just like they would with any airplane that carries people or goods, to give it that provisional certification to operate for commercial purposes. So safety is of paramount concern to the FAA, should be of paramount concern to all of us as citizens. And those of us in industry are working very hard to ensure that systems like these are reliable, they're safe, and frankly there are birds that are larger and heavier than this airplane in front of me.
1: Yeah. So we've been talking about U.S. airspace, and, and that should remind us that not everything up there is necessarily friendly. Uh, I've personally written that we and our allies should expect to see what Israel has faced uh, recently, which is you know, uh, unfriendly unmanned vehicles in their skies that we've, they've had to shoot down, uh, coming from Hezbollah in this case. So, um, Randy, let me, let me turn to you. you know, how well can we detect and distinguish what's up there in friendly versus enemy uh, aircraft of various sorts? Can we shoot them down? Uh, how much of a threat are they really? Uh, and How much should we be thinking about investing for our protection?
3: Well, well this really does take us to the dark side. Uh, there, are, there are now 900 systems made by 200 manufacturers in 75 countries. We aren't the only ones that have these systems. There are two dozen countries that have armed UASs or are, have systems that they've imported that can be armed. Now, one, one of the things that we do is we follow the National Training Center. This is out at Fort Irwin near, uh, near Barstow. And they have these 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 large... Uh, exercises, uh, training training exercises where they have Abrams tanks and Bradleys and, and helicopters and the thousands of soldiers. And they go through two-week rotations. We follow that. And recently what they've been doing is they've been bringing in, in these special rotations uh, uh, called decisive action ones, uh, UASs on both sides. And they've made a big difference. These are These are ones where even though these small small aircraft many of them small small as in size as the uh, air environment ones uh, they're able to spot the uh, the friendly force uh, uh forces, they set up ambushes, target their command and control centers, make a real change to the battle. So that then led to this whole notion of, how can we shoot these things down? Uh, they already tried to do that in, in, in some of the National Training Center exercises. They were shooting down as many of their own as there were of the enemies. You can't tell who they are. They, you, you, you can't tell them for birds. They're, 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 they're an extremely difficult uh, uh, system to, to, to counteract. So that led to a, to a series of exercises by DOD called Black Dart and can't get into the, a whole lot of details on this, but this is something that, that out of Point Magoo and China Lake, they, they, have, they started out with kind of a science exercise. Can we shoot down some of these things? Can we just kind of carry some little payloads? And it's, it's morphed into something that now they have all classes of UASs live fire against them. They, they, they bring out Apache helicopters, <gasps> F-16s, uh, uh, Avenger teams. They even have an Aegis cruiser with laser, laser cannon. You didn't you probably didn't know that there's laser cannons out there they they're, they're going to be in the battlefield probably in three to five years. These are high power lasers kind of similar to the command to the the commercial ones that welded your car together they, they gang a bunch of them together, put a lens in front of it, put a cooling system on there and they, they shoot down everything you can think of from mortars rockets to UASs uh, from, from many kilometers so they're trying out all these different things and one of the things that we 've been doing is following along analytically and finding that there's gaps there are problems in the mid range sense, there are problems in, in being able to tell whose who's, who, who's, uh, UASs are whose, and so we've, we've put out a number of uh, reports now on how to deal with this kind of a threat.
1: Okay, well, it's, it's very clear, and see, I'll go back to my prior comment, Randy is very comfortable on the dark side. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, it, now, uh, one of the key things that came to mind as we, we've been having this discussion is actually uh, privacy, and I know it's, a, it's been a significant issue in, in the press uh, and in terms of the, the application of these systems, particularly in private life and commercial uh, uses. So um, should we be worried about that? I think p- some people are. I suspect there will be some questions after this no matter what. But um, uh, I'd just like to get your thoughts, uh, Steve, on, on how you've seen the, the um, legal framework on this evolve and, and where you think it's headed.
2: It's a, it's a really valid point because people care about it. I care about it. Um, we are citizens, and we 're protected by the Constitution. Uh, however, it, it, it seems it 's interesting where you have numerous states where proposals are being put forth to somehow limit or ban unmanned aircraft systems like these, prevent first responders from using this technology to protect us because of concerns over the privacy potential privacy violations of that. Our, our, our sense is as, as partly as an industry is for people who are concerned about privacy that debate shouldn't be just about unmanned aircraft systems. That should be about the cameras that are installed in ATMs, the cameras that are on corners, the cameras that are in stores. Um, and, and when you think about that, if I take you back a few months to that horrendous tragedy at the Boston Marathon where a couple of guys wrought havoc on, on a lot of innocents, how did they identify them? Well, largely because there were those cameras distributed throughout a very – Populated area, so we really do have to take a balanced approach to weighing the benefits of technology like these against the risks of that technology. That said, there's another aspect aspect of this debate that doesn't really get addressed that often, which is this is a tool. The cube, any of these unmanned aircraft systems, are tools. They primarily collect information and provide that information to somebody. Their unique value proposition is partly their vantage point, 400 feet in the air, or 10,000 or 50,000 feet in the air. What have you? The, there there's a real issue around what people do with the information that they produce. Currently, many police forces, many first responder forces around the country employ dashboard cameras. Some of them employ cameras and recorders on their person that capture video information in their daily daily lives. And, and those agencies have policies and procedures for managing that information. How long can they keep it? Who has access to it? When must it d- be destroyed? The information that unmanned aircraft systems produce in those applications should be thought of in the very same way. Right. There are already processes and procedures for information. There's no reason to believe they should be treated any differently. That idea seems to get lost in a lot of the debate over privacy. We think it's a very important issue for people to be reminded of because, again, this is a new way to position a sensor, a camera. Cameras are not new.
1: Okay. Well, uh, note that Congress has a couple bills going on this. There's bills working in a number of states, as you noted. Uh, so let's let's step out to the big picture as as we sort of wrap this up. And uh, so so what do we make of all of this, right? Um, are, are these systems really transformative, or are they are they simply a, a sort of another tool in our toolkit and evolution? Um, will they change the way we live? I, and, and so I'll, I'll I'll pass this to both of you. Both both, both, both of you can address this question. Um, it, it's it's a it's a huge issue. These days, just because the 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 sort of exploding application of these systems, but I'm not sure sure it's if it's going to be a truly uh, transformative factor in American life or just another change that we've all experienced. So, uh, Randy, you want to start?
3: Well, well, on on the military side. Transformative is really a big thing. You know, that revolutionary, transformative. You're talking a bomb, or you're talking the tank and the blitzkrieg, or the machine gun in World War One. Did it really make a change to the way the the other side would react? Did they did they change their organization or their their acquisition or are there all other processes? Because this really isn't that That transformative it 's really taking the demand on the aircraft making making the aircraft uh, uh, longer duration more capable uh, uh, greater payload in many ways it 's it's, it's an evolutionary process however. If it turns out that you start to get some new tactics, swarming tactics, deception, uh, electronic warfare, uh, there, there's a lot of ways that you may be able to completely change things for your opponent. They've already changed things for al-Qaeda leadership, and that uh, they, they, they've gone into hiding a lot as a, <laughs> as, as a result of this. But whether or not it's, it's going to be
2: really a revolution in military affairs, that, that, that's still to be seen. It, it, interesting. I'll just comment very briefly on that. Um, in the case of the small systems that we make, um, there, there have actually been military officials who have considered this an RMA, Revolutionary Military Affairs, and I would, I would posit that the, um, the the spouses, the children, the friends, the family of the soldiers and Marines, whose, the many of them whose lives have been saved by this technology would clearly consider it a transformative technology in that particular definition. From, from a public perspective... This is an exciting new industry. This has got entrepreneurs, young people, engineers tremendously excited about this technology, coming up with exciting new ideas to employ this technology in ways that we can't even imagine today. And with the proper regulatory framework, with a a regulatory environment that allows the market to develop and, and uh, come up with these brand new alternatives and business models for employing them, we think there's gonna be a huge opportunity, tremendous opportunity, and frankly, for those populations, those locations, states, cities, communities, where this technology is manifest and developed, that's gonna mean jobs, that's gonna mean economic potential, and it's going to mean the ability to do things in a fundamentally more efficient, more cost-effective, and safer manner for many people around the country and around the world.
1: Yeah, I can say, as, a, as a, a father of a tenth grader in robotics, there's there's tremendous excitement out there among <laughs> the young people. Um, so I could I, uh, let me just finally just turn to a little bit to the role of analysis uh, before we close this up. But I think we can all see, and, and really not for the first time, how a technological advancement is sort of forcing hard choices from a policy perspective, how we employ these technologies, the choices we make about privacy, about safety, about uh, their use in various forms. Um, We've touched on some of the soft, sort of qualitative issues associated with that, legal, ethics, privacy, that nonetheless have to be informed by a solid technical assessment of safety, effectiveness, and cost. And I would say, fortunately, we have a lot of people experience about uh, dealing with those sorts of issues and putting them together to, to make for good decisions, better decisions out there in the public space, and the people and the tools to tackle that. So with that, I'd like to very much thank my two panelists, and I'll open this up for questions.
0: Uh, Folks, I know everyone probably has a lot to say on this topic because it's very interesting, and thank you all very much. Uh, We'll take some questions. My colleague and I will be walking around. We'll try to identify you if you have your hand up. So we will start.
4: Uh, This is a bit self-serving. We have a grandson who's a a third-year Air Force cadet at the Academy. And there was an article written several months ago that there was a shortage of pilots for all the military and commercial requirements. And there's a thought that perhaps the people who handle and manipulate and control the the large drones, the Predators and the Gray Eagle, should no longer need to be trained pilots perhaps should become a profession like an engineer. I don't know if that's true and what you think about it.
3: Uh, I I can take a quick answer to that. Uh, uh, the The Air Force and the Army see this in two different ways. The Air Force loves to have pilots who are... I, I, who are licensed pilots that really know know what they're doing in, up up in the air and have been in the air. The army goes with soldiers, and they they usually go at the lower altitudes and the smaller systems. But they're very capable, and uh, uh, in in each case they've done quite well. There are there are a limited number of pilots, and the pilot school is very expensive. It's several million dollars to make a pilot, and so it, it's likely that most of the operate these things. That takes 100 people to do one aircraft 24 hours a day. That, uh, you, you have to have a launch and, launch and recovery crew. You have to have a, a, a sensor, sensor pod crew and a, and, a, and a pilot. And you need a, a maintenance crew and then sensor interpreters. And you have to rotate those over, over uh, uh, eight-hour periods. So you need a lot of people. And, uh, and even, even among those who are pilots, you don't necessarily need to have the pilots. As you say, it's, it's more, more of an engineer.
2: And if I can just add a, a comment to that, uh, one of the areas of innovation that we've been pursuing in the operation of systems like these is the user interface. So in the military domain, there's a small device that's got a big screen in the middle that's got buttons. It looks a lot like a handheld video game, and that's particularly relevant to the 18- and 19-year-old Service members who have grown up playing video games. They understand that buttonology. There's actually a term called buttonology for where you put the buttons. I didn't know that. So, one of the things we've done is as we adapt the technology for the commercial and civil space, we've come up with a touch screen control panel. So, basically, by touching this screen, you can launch, operate, go through the checklist, uh, manage uh, system performance, view the video, direct it to different places. The computer does the flying in a system like this. The operator, who can be trained for uh, uh, life-saving and public safety, they don't have to go to a, for a year's worth of training to be able to operate a system like that. They can focus on what they're trained to do and use this as a tool to protect the public.
1: Yeah, I could say too that there's, we're going to see an evolution here because the initial impetus to use pilots for these first generations of truly capable unmanned systems was driven as much by the requirements for safety with unknown systems and transiting U.S. airspace from ranges uh, as it was for the need to actually have a trained Air Force pilot sitting at that console. Um, So we'll see an evolution of this going forward for sure. And there is definitely a pilot shortage driven in part by the commercial space.
4: We have a question on your left.
0: Speaking of commercial space, what are your thoughts on um, unpiloted
1: commercial aircraft? I can say that the, the, um, uh, that's going to be something that uh, I suspect you'll see it someday. It's going to be driven by the, by the tipping point where people are confident enough about these systems that they'll actually trust their personal life and you know, and pay for the ticket. Um, who knows when that's gonna tip over. I, I will say that the military has looked uh, fairly carefully and extensively at using this for cargo and tanker kinds of applications. Um, uh, it hasn't quite gotten there yet, but it's, it's all headed that direction. These things have become uh, extremely um, uh, re- reliable in the basic um, attributes of, of controlling the flight. Um, they, they, they still have difficulties associated with being a small, you know, single-engine plane at times. So, the, um, but it's not really driven by their I- the inability to control that aircraft uh, in flight, which is the determinant that would decide whether you put a very large, very expensive aircraft under that type of control.
2: Well, One additional comment on that in that regard: I flew in from New York last night on a Boeing 767, <coughs> and. I am very happy that there's a flight crew in the front of that airplane. (laughs) However, the reality is that many of these airplanes fly themselves and can land themselves. And with next gen air traffic control, they can fly by GPS, waypoints. Again, personally, I like the idea of a pilot in the front and a crew. However, the technology is in place today and airplanes are flying today in a pseudo unmanned fashion.
1: Yeah. You really can't, you really can't get cost savings out of that though until you really actually bite the bullet and take the pilot out and take all their training out, all the all the stuff that goes into getting a pilot in the front.
4: You know,
0: we have a question here on your right.
4: Uh, uh, listening to this panel, you would think there were no arguments of merit on the other side yeah. um, in opposition to these. And so, I'd like to ask each of you, what do you think is the strongest argument against the use? For example, one that one hears most frequently on the military side, is the further removed we get from the actual action of killing somebody, the easier it is to do. That was high-altitude bombing. Now with this, you don't even have to put a pilot in harm's way. And so war seems a lot safer than it used to be. Now, you may not believe that. I may not believe that. But it doesn't strike me as silly. Uh, I just wonder what each of you would say for arguments in opposition to the spread of this technology.
3: On, on, on the military side, I think I would say that it's not so much the remoteness of the operator from the, from the field. And these these, these, these uh, pilots and, and uh, weapon operators actually do go through a great deal of stress there, uh, exactly. there, there already is is a lot of psychological problems with, uh, with, with engaging somebody on the battlefield like that. Even though you're in Las Vegas, uh, near, near near Las Vegas, you can, you can reach Air Force Base. But uh, uh, one of the other issues is is just uh, safety. Uh, we we still haven't quite got to the point. When when I first started at Rand, we went out to. Uh, uh, Yuma Air Force Base, and uh, we we rolled up next to the strip. They were they were taking an Israeli pioneer uh, off off the uh, runway. A, the the guy didn't get enough uh, uh, lift going. Uh, the Instructor told him to hit the throttle. Took it up. Rotated right out and was heading right for our rental car, <laughs> so we were screaming epithets and yelling, <laughs> and uh, he, he pulled it out. But but that safety safety aspect, it's gotten better. They've gone from ten times the combat aircraft uh, class A accident rates uh, for for Predator down to almost the same. But then, like like uh, Ted was mentioning in Djibouti, they had five crashes in the last two years, and this small country has asked us to you know, move away from their uh, their runway. So I think safety
2: is still something you have to really worry about. Mm. I, I think to the, it's an interesting question, but, but I think if for people who are concerned about that, they should also be concerned about Tomahawk missiles, cruise missiles, because in a sense, it's a similar kind of a tool. You're launching something from far away that's programmed to go to a certain place and have a certain impact on something. I would say in the commercial space, this privacy issue, as we talked about, this sh- we should be thinking about this. It's important. We should be confident that the people who are going to employ this technology do so in a manner that is respectful of our constitutional rights. And we should get involved in that debate, but we should do so in an informed manner so that we can have an open dialogue and hold those agencies that we hire to protect us to account to ensure that they use them in the appropriate fashion.
1: Yeah, I, I'd say the, the, the other big concern uh, on risk on the military side, which is what I know more about, uh, is, is the, the, the degree to which these systems rely upon your ability to control them and get information off them at great distance. That's really the major benefit to the, to the major systems the Air Force purchases here. And um, th- that is not a perfectly reliable uh, link. It's, it's a, um, uh, there, there are a lot of ways that uh, potential opponents could disrupt that information and the degree that you rely more and more and more on your ability to control and, and manipulate these at distance, um, you, you do create concerns that, that can be mitigated by having a pilot or somebody closer to, to, to take um, control under that circumstance. So the, there's a tough balancing act going on in the military right now, the degree to which they want to rely on these, on these systems. Now, I will be careful to note that that uh, concern and vulnerability threads through a whole bunch of things that go to our, our way of uh, fighting warfare now. It's not limited to unmanned systems, but it is a, a specific uh, concern for them as well.
4: We have a question in the center.
0: If these. Um drones or whatever you call them, are available commercially. This is a dark side question. What's to prevent the Somali pirates or the Mexican mafia from getting them and flying just fly the drugs across the border, and I guess the pirates can go scope out where the ships are?
3: Well, actually, the Mexican mafia <laughs> is already doing it, and not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not only are they doing it, they're doing handoffs. Now, now, a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is. You, you, they are actually taking off aircraft loaded with drugs and handing off through sectors, so they have controllers that go across the border. And so they're, they're, they're right up there with our air traffic control sectors. The, 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 the Somali pirate. There, there's a lot of different groups who will be using this in, in the future, but the Mexican mafia is right up there right now.
2: I, I think that's a. It's actually a very compelling reason to to expedite the ability for our law enforcement agencies and federal agencies to be able to use this technology to counter that threat.
1: Yeah, um, th- there is a there is a positive aspect to that too, which is that. Um, the United States uses these systems um, very effectively, in part because they, we think of them as systems. So you, you have to have not just an aircraft flying around, but but the means of controlling it, the means of getting information out and, uh, or or uh, utilizing weapons off of it, and, and y- using that for an effect. And the United States, I think, is ahead on that uh, by quite a bit. So just having the ability to fly a, uh, an unmanned vehicle around, as Hezbollah has done in Israel, you could crash that into something and you could harm some people. But it isn't, it isn't something that's going to make a huge change in the ability of bad people to harm people. Uh, so in some ways, it's a worry but not a huge threat, and I don't think a, a, a meaningfully, meaningfully greater threat than the sorts of tools that terrorists and other have, others have at their disposal right now.
0: We have a question in the middle.
1: Hi. I've uh, spoken to some uh, members of the UN who have uh, talked to me about the idea of using drones for peacekeeper operations. And I was asking about it, and uh, I was surprised to find out that they were very much against that idea because – the response was as soon as you put a, a robot effectively uh, in the place of a man, you're going to have the local population feel uh, untended to as though the outside world doesn't care about them as much, and therefore there was a, a moral virtue to actually having a human peacekeeper on the ground. So my question is, uh, what, as technology advances to the point where you can do anything uh, manless, When do we still want a man? What operations uh, are always going to, for moral or ethical reasons, require a person behind the wheel?
2: Well, if if I can just comment briefly on that, and and Randy can certainly draw on much more experience to address the question. Every one of the systems we make is manned. The difference is the man is on the ground and not in the aircraft. So there's a human in the loop controlling the aircraft, viewing the information, making decisions about where where that aircraft's gonna go and what it's going to do. Um, now, I can't speak to the moral issues, that's a subjective issue, but, but I will say, as you mentioned that, I got an email last week from a, uh, a family-owned uh, nature reserve in Southern Africa that is doing everything they possibly can to protect the dwindling population of rhinos from the poachers that are yeah. more, you know, decreasing the runway left for that species in the world. So um, not so much a U.N., but from a humanitarian perspective, there are some tremendous moral arguments in favor of using this manned technology that doesn't have a man in the airplane to uh, do some very important missions.
3: But I think you're absolutely right. There has to be a certain component, which is uh, what we've seen before. Petraeus when he was asking the uh, forces to go out more into the, into the villages, uh, the stabilization operations where you'd you, you learn what's going on. You can't really do that necessarily with the, with the platform that's, that, that's up above. But you're taking a risk, and you need, uh, need to have a combination where those on the ground can have an idea of what's happening around them. We did a, a whole analysis of the Battle of Warnat. This is, this is one in 2008. It didn't have U.N. peacekeepers, but it had a combination of U.S. and, Af- and, and uh, uh, Afghan forces. And there, had they had that warning before the pre-dawn raid, you know, there wouldn't be the, the loss of life, the surprise. The, they would have been able to reorient their weapons, would have been able to get the fast reaction forces in there. So we, we did that, that entire simulation analysis and, and found that if you had a platform, it would have made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, It's actually the same argument about community policing. There does need to be human contact, but these are all tools that can augment the ability of those people that are there. The other thing is that a fair number of U.N. Um, operations are simply monitoring, monitoring compliance. And th- there you, you could get a benefit, I think, even without a great deal of um, personnel or presence on the ground visible just for ensuring that compliance was being uh, made for certain agreements that, that the UN monitors. This presentation is provided as a public
0: service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.